And now at this time, kids, this is the time to come on up to your screen for our children's message. So come on up close. All right. Good to have all you kids joining us this morning. So glad to have you. Now I have here something to show you. I have a cake recipe. All right, it's a recipe for a cake. The cake is called Simple White Cake. All right, so it's a recipe for a cake. Now, let me ask you, what is the purpose of this recipe? What is this recipe for? Well, it shows us an example. It shows us an example of how to bake a cake. It has a list of ingredients here, and it gives some directions that could be followed. But here's a question for you. Do I have to follow this recipe? I don't, do I? I could choose different ingredients if I wanted to. Or I could forget these directions and I could do my own directions. When our passage today in 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to learn that there are old examples for us in the Old Testament. As we read through the Old Testament, there are examples for us. And these examples are written down for us for our instruction similar to how this recipe is written down for our instruction on how to bake a cake, all right? Now, you think with me here. Are all examples good examples for us to follow? Well, no, they aren't, are they? Some examples show us how not to do something. So I have here another recipe with me. This is another recipe for a cake. This cake is called Wacky Cake, all right? Now, this recipe is a bad example of how to make a cake. If I followed this example, the cake would taste awful. So I don't want to do that. It's a bad example, right? So in 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to see this. We're going to see some bad examples. We're going to see that there's some warnings to us and instructions on how not to do things, on how not to live. The examples are of people who did evil Rather than worshiping God, they followed their own desires and they sinned against God. Now, for us, for you in your life, you have examples too. Some of those examples for you are good examples. They're good examples of how to uh, follow Christ and how to live for God's glory. But there are other examples that are bad examples of people who are choosing to live in sin and following their own sinful desires. And so we need to learn from both the good examples in our lives as well as the bad examples in our lives. So let's be people who keep ourselves from sin and who live faithfully in obedience to God. So Pastor Jeremy's going to come now and preach from Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, uh, would you turn with me to the letter of 1 Corinthians? We're in chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. John Calvin uh, was a reformer, and he stayed a, a short time in Geneva, and they pressed him hard to remain there as a pastor, and he did. And after a, a few years of service there, anti-Reformation Catholic forces caused him to have to leave. And so he went to Germany, and he continued his Reformation work there in Strasbourg. After a number of years, he was invited back to Geneva uh, in order to 
again take up the ministry of reformation, which he did there. And when he arrived back in Geneva, he started preaching again from the very text that he'd left off three years earlier. He didn't have a sermon series on glad to be back or on reformation. He just picked up in the Bible again where he was. So that expressed a profound faith that the reformers like John Calvin have in just the simple expositional preaching in God's word. And so even during a time like this, um, where there might be a, a cause for other sermon series, maybe topical sort of, we're just going to continue on preaching right through God's word because it's what God's people need. We need um, to be awoken to biblical Christianity, which means biblical preaching. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to keep going right through 1 Corinthians, and I hope and pray that God uses it to continue to reform your life. Let me read verses 1 to 13 of 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to be, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of, the, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as, our, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Father, let your steadfast love come to us now, your salvation according to your promise. God, we trust your word. Our hope is in your rules. Teach us to keep your law continually and forever before us, that we would walk in a wide place, for we seek your word. God, help us to speak of your testimonies and to learn of the testimonies that come before us that we might not be put to shame. Help us to delight in your commandments, which we love. And so, God, help us now to hear your word by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been tracking with us through 1 Corinthians 10, you'll remember that back in chapter 8, we saw the pride of God's people in thinking themselves better than others. You've heard this the last few weeks. Those who had freedom of conscience to eat meat, even if it was sacrificed to idols, looked down on those who didn't have that freedom. And those who didn't have that freedom are looking down on those who did. And so there was this kind of spiritual superiority among God's people, pride and division and so on. Paul then uh, rebukes them saying that, 
we should always consider the, the best spiritual interests of our brothers and sisters ahead of our own rights. And then Paul uses himself as an example of that in chapter 9. Paul explains uh, at length that he has certain rights as the apostle that are even beyond their rights, but he refuses to use them where he understands that they would do damage to God's people. And so, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest my brother stumble. Or Paul says, I will not make use of my own right uh, in order to not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have this issue of our freedom, our rights in Christ, but submitting them to the law of loving our neighbor. Now Paul, at the end of chapter 9, explains a reason why he does this. He's running a race, and he wants to receive the prize, and so he wants to run in a way to obtain it. Every athlete trains, beating his body, so that he might win uh, even a perishable wreath, but we know we're looking for an imperishable wreath. So we don't run aimlessly. He doesn't box his beating the air, but he disciplines his body. He keeps it under control, wanting to be uh, submissive to the Lord in his word, lest after preaching to others, he himself should be disqualified. Now then, Paul goes in chapter 10 and points to several examples of people who did disqualify themselves, who were not self-controlled according to God's word. And so Paul, having shown us a positive example of himself, now it turns to show us negative examples according to God's word. And in this teaching then, we get some really wonderful instruction about what God's word is. And so I want to start there. Second, I want to look at the specific examples Paul points out. There's four of them from the Old Testament. And then end with verse 13, which I believe is meant to be very reassuring to God's people. So first, let's talk about Scripture particularly how to read the Bible. Uh, most of us are aware of the windmill ice cream store. It should be opening. I don't know when it's opening or if it will with this stuff, but this will be a great loss for us, maybe our greatest loss under the safer at home issue. But if you go there, don't order a, a, a large. Just order the small because it's a, it's a heaping pile. It's more ice cream than you should eat. And there's a parable in there about what Scripture is. There's always more blessing than what your eye sees. There, there's always more. God fills his word with incredible blessing for us. And we see that here in chapter 10. First, just note, in verse 6 and in verse 11, uh, the blessing of Scripture, the, the, the great goodness of God in Scripture. Why did he inspire his eternal word to be written for us. In verse 6, now these took place as examples for us. In verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So why do we have scripture? Because God loves us. That's why. He wanted to heap blessing upon blessing to us, and so he inspired all of Scripture to be written. He created this world. He filled it with his redemptive purposes and plans and examples, caused men to write them down, preserve them over the ages for a singular purpose, you. And so, not to make this too sentimental, but the Bible was written for you. God wrote his word through men by his Holy Spirit for our instruction. A father has written 66 books 
for you and for me. It's for our instruction. It's God's personal letter to each of us. It's, uh, we just did Easter. It's an Easter egg basket filled with goodness, assembled just for you, given just for you. He means it to be for you. This helps us to understand that God in his word isn't hiding. He's revealing. He's opening up. He's not trying to be obscure. One of the doctrines of God's word is that it's clear. It, it, it is written for our instruction. He is making it plain. And, and brothers and sisters, friends, please don't neglect this great gift of God's love for you. This is the love of God to you. He has given you his word. This is love. Who in your life writes you these kind of letters? Who takes the time to pen in their own hand uh, a letter declaring their intent for you, their care for you, their concern for you, even instruction to you, their love for you? God is such a father. And he has penned to his sons and daughters his word. And so let's receive it as such. We not only see the goodness of God in this word, we see the purposes of God. Why has he written his word? Well, twice in verse 6 and in verse 11 for our example. And then he further explains for our instruction. God's word was written to instruct us. This is God the Father's fatherly teaching on how to live as his sons. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, we see a father writing to his son, pleading with his son to be attentive to his wisdom, to incline his ear to understanding, to keep the words that he's writing in order that his life might be good. Hear, O son, a father's instruction. My son, do not forget my teaching. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands within you, if you call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, search for his and treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Then you will get the knowledge of God. God's word is written to you for your instruction. Every word inspired from the mouth of God, written to help you, to help you live this life for his glory and for your good. One of the things that theologians consistently raise is the good life. What does it look like to live the good life in Scripture? Well, that's what Scripture's for. It's written for your obedience that you might live the good life before God. And so receive it as such. Lastly, we learn in chapter 10, in these first 13 verses, the unity of God. So many times we come to Scripture and think that there's a great division between the Old and the New Testament. We somehow think God's schizophrenic. That God is one way in the Old Testament and another way in the New Testament. That God is harsh and demanding and mean in the Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament, he's kind and loving and generous and so forth. And we think that there's a great division in the people of God from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We think that the Old Testament is all about living according to rules and all about earning your salvation through great works. But then in the New Testament, magically, presto, it's changed. Now, it's not at all by works. It's only by faith in Jesus. And I want to say, if you read the first uh, five verses of chapter 10, all of that should go away. All that kind of thinking should go away. Notice the unity among God's people. Okay? Look first in verse 1. Who are we? We're brothers. 
Who are the saints that came before us? They're our fathers. There's not two people of God. There's one family of God. These brothers and sisters who came before us are a part of the church just like we are. They're our fathers. We're their siblings. We're supposed to look at them and their fatherly example both for good and for ill and learn from them. Why? Because they're family. They're family. The Holy Spirit speaks of them as family. Second, notice that they have the presence of God like we have the presence of God. It says that all our fathers were under the cloud. The cloud was God present with them. Don't we have the same presence? Was God a different God then than he is now? Our God is one. Their God is our God. Our God is their God. And not only that, they have the same spiritual um, uh, sacraments that we do. We enter into our, our first act in our new life in Christ is baptism. Just like theirs. They all were baptized. Not only that. They have the same spiritual food and drink. Notice that same. Notice that same. They had the baptism. They had communion. They had the Lord's Supper, just like we do. And even more so, they have the same Christ that we have. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. There is great unity across the Bible, not division. Why? Because there is great unity in God. God wasn't acting one way in the Old Testament and then suddenly began to act another way in the New. We have the same unity. This isn't a division in God. There's not a division in God's people. One church, one family of God, one baptism, one Lord's Supper. And so take care how you read the Bible. And let the unity that is in God inform the unity of God's people and inform your reading of the Bible. I think sometimes Christians almost ignore the Old Testament. They cut off from themselves these 39 books filled with treasures of examples, of principles on how to live before God. We cut off looking and learning from our forefathers as we learn in verse 1. And, and, and so we lose... What every son and daughter needs, the living, breathing example of a father. Because we neglect this treasure that we learn here about the unity of God's word. So let's look at these examples. Let's look at these examples that come from a, fa- a common people who have a common faith with us in the same Christ. You'll notice that Paul bookends these warnings by instructing us what we're supposed to do with them in verse 6 and 11. I've already covered it. But in, on each side of the four warnings in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 are bookended that these saints, these fathers before serve as examples. They serve as examples that warn us from our own sin, that warn the church in Corinth from their own pride and division, and that warn us too. We have a lot to learn here. So, the issue that it was present in the Corinthian church and was present in our church and in our lives is that the Corinthians thought that at the beginning of the race, they were finishing. They, uh, they were boasting as if they've arrived at some spiritual finish line 
when they've just begun the race. They were vain. They were overconfident. They were self-exultant. They were utterly convinced of their good standing in God based on themselves, based on the fact that, like the Old Testament saints, they've been baptized. They have the Lord's Supper. They have God's presence with them. And so they thought because of God's blessing of them, what somehow was attributed to them, they're good. They've arrived. Uh, in 1 Kings 20.11, it says, Let not him who straps on his armor base, boast as he who takes it off. Right? A young man putting on his armor can feel like he's one just because it's him in the armor. But a wise, humble veteran of warfare knows that the boasting comes after when you're taking it off and the enemy's defeated. And so just like the Old Testament saints, because they had God's presence, because they passed through the sea, because they were baptized, because they ate the spiritual food, they thought that they were in, they were done, they were complete, they'd arrived. And so we can become like that. We can we can become spiritually prideful, self-assured, cocky, self-exaltant. And this is what Paul is using these warnings. Using these warnings. Just notice, all, 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 most of them, with most of them, God was not pleased. They all saw the presence of God. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They all drank from the spiritual rock that was Christ. And nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Take care, brothers and sisters, that this is not you. And then Paul points to four specific examples. You could file this under the heading, we'll reap what we sow. <clears throat> we'll reap what we sow. So let's look at these four examples. The first is the golden calf from Exodus 32. Do not be idolaters as some of those were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. A part of the pagan idol worship included a meal and then afterwards great immoral playfulness, dancing and so on. And so what you see is Israel learning from the nations around them how, to, how they thought to worship God. They took their cue from the world around them. This is a problem of false worship. They were not careful to worship according to God's word. They were conforming to the world. Their worship was therefore very displeasing to God. And as you know, God judged them. We do the same in the church's worship, don't we? We take our cue from the world as far as music style and lyrics and content. Our current taking from the world is that we aim at worship that is uh, almost totally divorced from substance and thought and only emotive. Again, I don't ever think emotion's wrong. It's, it's a very necessary part of our worship. We should worship God with joy. We should worship God with hearts full of emotion, but not at the expense of truth, not at the expense of using styles and forms that communicate things that are not true about God and not true about our worship. That is, your worship service, your service of worship to God isn't um, accomplished when you feel good about it. If you're evaluating 
your experience in worship just about the feeling it created in you. Um, and so it's good when, when you've left felt something and, and not given the truth a place in your life. It's true. Our worship is then sometimes very effeminate, very weak, very emotive, divorced from truth, divorced from any kind of strength. But this isn't us, right? Our worship is perfect. We've arrived at Pine Grove. If only all other churches in the Rhinelander area would look to us and learn from us, they'd all be good like us. Of course, I'm um, saying that in jest, but that's the spirit of the Corinthians. They were the good church in town. They were the true church and everybody else wrong. And so we have to take care of our own pride as we strive to sing the right songs with the right theology, with the right feeling, with the right pastors, with the right music leaders. We're not the stuff. We're just sinners saved by grace, trying to worship a God who has saved us by grace. The second issue in verse 8 was fornication. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. That word there is more specifically fornication, as some of the dead, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is um, Numbers 25. If you'll remember, uh, the... um, a foreign nation hired a prophet to try to curse God's people, Balaam. Balaam, rather than cursing them, blessed them on three different occasions, but then gave the king a tip that you should send some of our nice-looking, loose women among them and tempt the men to uh, sleep with the women, to commit fornication and intermarry. If you want to destroy God's people, do it that way. And they did, and Israel fell. So fornication is sexual activity outside of the covenant bonds of marriage, including sexual activity outside of the faith. Now you'll notice here, and it ought to alarm us, lead us to bear in mind how loathsome, let me read this quote, it's from Calvin, the punishment of this vice also ought to alarm us and lead us to bear in mind how loathsome impure lusts are to God for there perished in one day 23,000 people. Let me do it this way. In the church, you know that there is quite a division and debate going on over the legitimacy of homosexuality, of whether or not the church should be affirming. And and, and so churches like ours rightfully hold fast to the biblical teaching on this issue. It's become proudful in that. We're a good church because we're standing against the cultural current, all the while allowing for all kinds of fornication and sexual immorality in the church. We don't have much to say about that, but we'll condemn all of the homosexual and gays outside of the church. Become very prideful and selective in what we'll condemn. And God's word will not let us off the hook on this. God hates sexual immorality. God hates sexual activity outside of marriage. He does not take it lightly. He destroyed 23,000. You'll notice in Numbers 25, it says 24,000. What's the difference? Well, one was rounding up and one was rounding down. Big deal. And so don't make room for this in your life. Repent of it. Uh, Confess it to God and to others, to get help from it. The next 
example is from Numbers 21 in verse 9. Here, God's people began to grumble greatly over the lack of God's provision. They grumbled greatly. Now, notice it says in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. Here is a great biblical teaching of the divinity of the Godhood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. The text from Numbers 21 says they put God to the test. Here the Holy Spirit says they put Jesus to the test. Jesus is God. And when we grumble and complain over God's provision, when we're full of discontentments over what God's provided, when we lust after and covet after what God has given another and not us, when we're desirous of the position somebody else has been or the responsibility else somebody has given and we want to kind of carefully tear them down to others so that we can exalt ourselves, we're doing the same. We are putting Jesus Christ, who is God, to the test. And God here sent um, serpents among them and destroyed many of them for their grumbling. Grumbling is a great sin before God, isn't it? Let us therefore take notice that the fountain of that evil against which Paul here warns us is impatience. When we wish to go before God and do not give ourselves up to be ruled by him, but rather to wish to bind him to our inclinations and laws. We want God to do what we want him to do. We don't necessarily want to do what God wants to do. We don't say, thine will be done. We want God to say, your will be done. And, and so we ought to take care of our grumbling. Um, right? This is especially true during this season. I've been given to grumbling. I've been given to grumbling and complaining and getting angry. So we must repent of that. Lastly, then, in verse 10, we have a situation from Numbers 16 of Korah's rebellion. Uh, they, the people rose up against Moses and rebelled, complaining of the leadership God has provided them. And uh, God sent down fire and swallowed them up. And so take care, brothers and sisters, of your rebelliousness, your grumbling, your complaining against the leadership God has placed in your life, be it at home with your husband or parents with your children or maybe teachers or our civil leaders or the shepherds God has provided you here even at church. If you really want to see even more the greatest example of God's wrath against sin, and his mercy against repentant sinners, we have to look no further than the cross. Jesus Christ, God's Son, taking on flesh, suffered the infinite wrath of God in his flesh for us. God hates sin. And yet, God is incredibly merciful to us sinners in that through that same judgment on his Son for our sin, we are now welcomed as his sons and daughters forgiven, uh, all of our sins removed. Doesn't this show us, brothers and sisters, the awfulness of sin before God? Why would we continue on? Why would we be so prideful thinking we've arrived? Why would we think we're something? This is the entire point of this. Our fathers who came before us serve as a type of the church having the same blessings that we have, and yet because of their pride and refusal to heed God's warning, seeing themselves as some them were not, God was not pleased. And so do you have faith to receive this for yourself? Our day is one utterly committed 
to convincing you that no matter what else, God is pleased with you. And of course, that's true in Christ. If we're truly in Christ and have living faith in him, God has accepted us. We are his precious possession. We are his sons. And yet, as we continue on in our sin and pride, we do have faith, we do have to have faith to hear verse 5. Our sin is not pleasing to God, but notice, it's not that our sin is not pleasing, it's that it says with most of them, God was not pleased. Do you have that room for that verse in your theology? God may not be pleased with you as you continue on in your sin and pride. Of course he does not prove of your sin. He hates it. But he might be the same with you. He's displeased with both of them. Or, and, and who is them? Look at verse 12. This is the definition of them. Them who think they stand. Them who can't imagine that God would be displeased with you. Them who think that they are the thing, that they are the standard, that they deserve better, that they cannot fathom, that God would judge them. I've said this before. If you're right now really concerned with your spiritual state, it's not you. If you're, if you're right now trembling before God, it's not you, likely. But those of you who are just so self-assured, who can't imagine this is you, who constantly want a higher pride of place and think others should look to you. And this is you. Take care lest you, anyone who thinks that he stands lest he fall. That's, that's the them in verse 5. That's the them in verse 5. Now this isn't to say that there isn't real confidence and assurance of salvation. There is. Look at verse 13. We, uh, to use a ridiculous example to explain the sublime, there's been commercials, I don't know if they're recent, but in the last few years where you have a serious situation and no expert is present, but then somebody comes who acts like they're the expert and they say, I stayed at the Holiday Inn Express last night. Right? And the, they're supposed to help us think that there is a, Somebody made a wise choice in a hotel, and so he or she must be an expert in every other area, like medicine. And, and so they have hope in themselves. They're puffed up with their ability because they made one small good decision, and so they can make it all up. That isn't what we're to be here. The point isn't that you can fight sin in your own strength, but God is faithful. That's the point. If you want real assurance... If you want real confidence in your fight against your sin, it's found not in you, but in God. It's not grounded in yourself. It's grounded in God. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It's been there before. It will be there again. You're not special. God is your God. You don't have to think that what's happening to you is overwhelming to you, like you're, unique you're a unique case of this temptation. No, it's happened before. And by God's faithfulness, men and women have not gone into it. 
And so we should never, ever say, I can't help it as a Christian. The temptation is too strong for me as a Christian. Why? Because Christ has been raised from the dead. And we are in Christ. The power of sin has been broken over us. God is faithful. That's who we look to. That's who we look to. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. What does that mean? It means that he's in control of temptation. He knows you. He knows what you're able to bear. He will only allow temptation to go so far. And in that temptation, you will be allowed a way out. You know that's to be true in your own sin. I've had it in my life when I've been tempted that I see a clear way of escape. It's there. I know it. Will I remain in the sin and indulge the temptation? Will I linger? Or will I take the way of escape that God himself has provided who is faithful? Will I walk out of it as God has freed me from my sin and the resurrection of his son? Or will I remain in it and indulge my flesh? God is faithful. He's given you the way out. But you must not depend on yourself. You must depend on God. You must look to God's faithfulness. Every temptation is an opportunity for you to look to the God in heaven above who sacrificed his son, who rose from the dead, and plead with him, God, help me. God, free me from this temptation. God, forgive me when my heart is so attracted to this. I want out. Get out. Fight. Box. Beat yourself down. Don't give in to it. Why? Because God is faithful. He's provided a way out. Verse 13 is to assure you, to console you. Temptation is not your God. It doesn't rule you in Christ. It has no power over you unless you give it to it. Don't rely on your own strength. God is your guardian. He never leaves. He never fails. You might be thinking though, why does God allow the temptation then? Why doesn't he just keep me from it all? What would you become like if you were never tempted? What would you think? The first thing you would think is, look how good I am. Look how strong I am. I'm not tempted like the rest of these, you know, blockheads. I'm you would immediately become so full of yourself that you couldn't be standing to be around by us, maybe even God himself. God allows temptation. He ordains it for our humility, for our dependence on, on him. It's a good gift in that way. But God means you to learn that you can trust in him in order to fight temptation. And so that's what God has given us. So we don't have to fear, do we? We don't have to fear, do we? We look to God who is faithful. Let's pray. Father, help us then to have ears to hear this text that we do need to learn from the fathers who come before us, learn from their examples, that we would not be full of ourselves, we would not think we stand lest we fall, that we would not think we've finished a race and we've just begun it. And so God, give us ears to hear this, that we might, not be displeasing to you. And forgive us for lying to ourselves and to others that you could only ever be pleased with us because we're so dear to you. Give us ears to hear this warning, O oh God, that we might fear you, really, that's it, that we might fear you. We have nothing else to fear in this world but you. May we not fear those who can kill, but you, only you can kill and cast into hell. May we fear you, but may we take great confidence in you that you are our faithful God you are near, that you defend, that you protect, that you provide a way out, and would you give us the faith to take it that we might not indulge our own flesh as they did before and suffer the same. 
And so God, please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen.